This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Everyone wants to know how bad our Omicron outbreak might get and when, but experts trying to answer that have copped a lot of flack in the media lately when scenarios that they've scoped haven't much matched what's happened so far. So do the media understand that experts have to factor in uncertainty? You know, I may Google something, but I'm not going to go to a talk radio host to figure out how to do my, my plumbing, right? And in a weekend when Zoe Sadowski-Sinnott provided a golden sporting moment in Beijing, her dad delivered a bit of a minty's moment on live TV here. Well, the toilet blocked up this morning. You reckon that was good? I'm going to tell you about that. (laughs) But first, once again, a collection of COVID sceptics made a pilgrimage to Parliament under the banner of freedom, and a bunch of other things too, and their fringe views in our overwhelmingly vaccinated society. So, how did the media handle them, and the intense anger some of them feel for the media themselves? politician reactions today, it's unlikely that's something that's going to happen. While the numbers here have dwindled today, there are still cars parked along the roads here blocking it. Wellington City Council tells me that they won't be ticketing or towing anyone. Instead, the message is for other members of the public to simply avoid the area. Imogen Tanakwe. That was News Hub's Imogen Wells during a live cross on 3 last Tuesday night, reporting on the protests that followed the anti-vaccine Convoy 2022 coalescing at Parliament. Now, wisely, she reported from a vantage point overlooking the crowd on the lawn, though, as you heard there, just one noisy and hostile protester who noticed she was on live and knew who she was reporting for was enough to make that pretty tricky. Her TVNZ counterpart, Kristen Hall, was supposed to be reporting live on One News at 6 at that same time from a Parliament building balcony, but she was moved by Parliament security staff at the last minute because her crew's presence there incited the crowd. And in the report Kristen Hall compiled earlier, it was pretty clear that even gathering a standard vox pop nearby could trigger the convoy contingent. I don't really think the spirit of most people here is, is violent protest. We I just money, would you? And the following day, the hostility directed at her went up a notch. For some people, you're still getting those really mixed messages. There was a woman at the protest today carrying a sign saying, love is the cure, but she was yelling up to me and some of the other uh, reporters up on the speaker's balcony that we're all going to get executed uh, for how we're reporting this situation. So certainly some very mixed messages still going on. Getting pretty sick of this sort of nonsense, Kristen Hall tweeted on Tuesday, and she's not the only one, as we'll hear. But at the start, some said they were just a pale copy of the Canadian truckers' protest that's disrupting the capital there, and that this version didn't really deserve all the media attention that it got. But on Tuesday, Business Desk's founding editor Patrick Smilly disagreed. He said that while critics had belittled this as a clown convoy as it converged on the capital... Supporters lined the route in surprising numbers, waving placards in torrential rain. Given more than 9 out of 10 New Zealanders are vaccinated, this showing was impressive, and suggests more cohesion among the disparate range of alt-right conspiracy theorists and sincere, if misinformed, groups that underpin this activity. And Byron C. Clark, who monitors online extremism, reckoned that political elements working separately and without much impact in the election in 2020 seem to be working together this time. Last November, Parliament's grounds were also occupied by anti-vaxxers and people opposed to mandates, and also, in many cases, the media. Few people were really looking for trouble, but reporters were targeted. 
the classics that the media has been paid out by the government. That's a favourite line of theirs, uh, telling us that we are the virus, um, throwing uh, the tennis balls at us uh, and at the police um, from on the other side of the fence line. Something they could do. We've also had water thrown at us today. Uh, anything. But they're not a fan of us. That's RNZ's Jake McKee reporting last November. Now at the time, RNZ's News Chief, Richard Sutherland, who was speaking as a Deputy Chair of the New Zealand Media Freedom Committee, told me this was no joke. I know it might seem trivial being um, bombarded with tennis balls, but put yourself in the position of of a reporter who's standing there in front of a a sea of people, many of them uh, accusing you personally of being uh, an enemy of the state, uh, a, a traitor, enemy of the people. Next time, those tennis balls could be rocks, said Richard Sutherland, or worse. Well, next time was this past week at Parliament, and there were, happily, no rocks, but still plenty of hostility and disrespect for reporters. On Thursday, the convoy refused to leave the Parliament grounds, and arrests and scuffles went on all day in a standoff that the top cop on site called unprecedented in New Zealand. The Prime Minister tried to play it all down, saying that she'd seen a number of protests, and this certainly wasn't the largest, but the owner of the pub across the road told NewsHub he'd never seen a nastier one in over 30 years. Started calling us Nazis and just general abuse. So we've had four shore and seabed marches, we've had every march you can imagine, and we've never been in that situation. And in his daily podcast, The Kaka, journalist Bernard Hickey reckoned it was the worst protest he'd seen anywhere in that time. Abusing um, vaccinators in uh, chemists, uh, threatening to kill journalists and politicians, parading nooses around and placards that talk about killing and uh, uh, executing politicians and people, spitting at journalists, shoving reporters, scenes and things like I've never seen in 35 years of covering protests in Wellington, Auckland, Sydney, Canberra, not in Singapore, they don't do protests in Singapore, uh, London, New York. It's been vitriolic. That was Bernard Hickey speaking on Thursday, and he reckoned it won't be the last time we see protests like this because the online misinformation that's motivating the protesters via their smartphones would only delude and radicalise them more and other people as well. And as if to make that point... Many in the crowd were using their phones to watch and contribute to live coverage of the occupation of Parliament on the conspiracy-laden online outlet Counterspin. And where we go, phone cameras follow. The protest is broadcast on Counterspin. So how is Counterspin Media funded? It's funded by the people. This is a people's network. Is there any international backing for Counterspin Media? No, there's not, well, not, not that we know of. TVNZ's Krishna Norman reporting on One News last Friday, and she told TVNZ's viewers that some others involved in Parliament this week had a history of provocation. Calvin Alp was behind the New Zealand Armed Intervention Force, which threatened a series of attacks in Wellington in 2000. Twelve years on, he's still pushing his agenda. So when are you going to leave here? We're going to leave here when the job's done. Now, while some reports describe this whole thing as a leaderless mass of harmless hippies, Hare Krishnas and homeopathy believers on one side and angry anti-vax and even maybe incipient assassins on another, some journalists filtered the alternative online channels that the organisers and participants actually used. This weekend, Stuff's Charlie Mitchell boiled down hours of Counterspin's live output for a vivid vignette of what subscribers and supporters were actually viewing. 
And on newsroom.co.nz, senior political reporter Mark Dalder scraped the posts on encrypted messaging apps and other social media platforms to show how the convoy went from, in his words, a targeted protest about vaccine mandates to a vehicle for fringe and often violent extremist ideologies. Now, few of the protesters at Parliament were probably getting the benefit of those analyses, but on counterspin, Melvin Alp was taking note and taking names and hitting back darkly on the counterspin live stream. So Mark Dolder, Byron C. Basement Dwelling Clark, we're about to expose you soon. We're going to show the funding lines. But it was a different story last week at the building housing the Taranaki Daily News in New Plymouth, where one man was pursued through a secure door by some of an angry mob that had gathered in the foyer. And videos of that same encounter were aired by the counterspin, with footage of ringleader Brett Power declaring they would be back and their job would be completed. Now the ringleaders of that crowd at the Taranaki Daily News in New Plymouth included two local councillors who also joined the convoy to Wellington, where Brett Power was one of three people arrested on Wednesday, led away screaming about media guilt. Dozens of police officers arrived at... Anna Fifield is the editor of the Dominion Post in Wellington, published by Stuff. This week I asked her about Stuff's approach to covering the protest on her paper's patch and whether she was worried by what happened at the offices of their colleagues at the Taranaki Daily News. I was surprised to some extent that this was happening in New Zealand, but also not surprised at all because we have seen this steady uh, move towards... yeah going from hateful kind of speech and trying to intimidate journalists to people taking action. I mean, in my background in the United States has taught me not to be complacent about these kinds of threats and kind of the, the power of the mob um, to wind each other up and to, to do this kind of thing. So, of course, I was very alarmed that these people were gathering in the lobby of this building. Um, but the fact is that they did not go to our newsroom. This was a, a big building with lots of tenants in it in New Plymouth and they at no stage were any of our reporters or editorial staff or or other staff at Stuff uh, in danger. I've seen footage on the Counterspin uh, online service, let's call it, which has Brett Power, who was the ringleader of that organisation. He was up the stairs peering through a window uh, saying, the journalists aren't here, they've run away, they've run but they can't hide, they're not at their desks. So they were actually trying to find the journalists. And a few days later, we see Brett Power on national television, one of the first people to get arrested, screaming into TVNZ's cameras about media guilt. Uh, This is a worry, isn't it? If people who really hate the media, for whatever misguided reason, are prepared to hunt them out in your newsrooms in New Plymouth, Yeah, I mean, it does worry me a lot, and we do take it really seriously. We've been staffing this protest from before dawn to well after dark every single day this week since it's happened. I always say to them, you know, safety first, story second, because it is very volatile. Um, But we're also balancing that, uh, you know, trying to keep our staff safe with reporting the story and doing our duty to the public. So every day it's a balancing act uh, that I'm trying to strike. That incident in New Plymouth, the Taranaki Daily News itself didn't make much of it. The, the paper itself just said the protesters entered the lobby of the building where 
The Taranaki Daily News is a tenant. Many in the crowd chanted in protest against the media before dispersing about 30 minutes after they arrived. There's no hint in that story that people were actually in the building trying to find and confront the paper's stuff. Did, did stuff deliberately downplay this incident? I don't think that we deliberately downplayed this incident. I think it's a really factual account of what happened uh, that, you know, no journalist or no staff staff ever encountered any of these protesters. I think many of them were not even aware that these protesters were uh, in the lobby at that time. It was a relatively short period of time. So I don't think we downplayed it. I think that we reported it factually and soberly in this kind of situation. You know, are we the story? I think the bigger picture is the story. Police and other people, you know, people trying to go to school or go to work uh, around Parliament grounds right now who are confronting these people. I think that's much more the story. Well, in that vein, uh, this is a 90% plus vaccinated society. The people at Parliament who we've seen who have been leading television news and, you know, on your front page for days now, um, they are clearly on the fringe and their beliefs very fringe. But obviously you as the editor of the paper where this is all playing out, can't ignore uh, what was happening, what they were saying. But did you, whether all this putting a lens on it really amplifies the messages, making it look like it might be more intense or more significant than it, than it really was? Absolutely, it's a balancing act and something I think about a lot. We have a duty to report a relatively big protest on the grounds of Parliament that is disrupting our city, but I'm really conscious that we need to do it in a way that does not amplify their messages. As you say, they're very fringe most entirely based on misinformation and disinformation. So we have been taking steps to make sure that we don't amplify their conspiracy theories. Uh, You know, we are careful in the way we crop photos. A lot of that live stream has been focused on the police and what they are doing to try to maintain security at Parliament. Um, And so, yeah, I think that we have a duty to cover it, but in in a careful and sober way. And I hope we got that balance right this week. That raw footage does give it, you, you don't have to watch it for long to get a really uh, vivid picture of just how much the misinformation has really emotionally dug into them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been down to Parliament several times this week to to check on my team, to get out there and get a sense of what's going on. I think we have, you know, it's a very small vocal minority, but I still do think it's incumbent on us to try to understand what is motivating the small group of people to take such extreme action. And so I, again, harking back to my background in the United States and thinking about the divisions and the tribalism and the us and them mentality that has riven that society and, and apart, I think, you know, we really need to try to understand what would motivate somebody to take this kind of stand. Yeah, that's interesting because when the convoy was on its way to Wellington, there wasn't an awful lot of coverage. Indeed, some of the people behind it was, were claiming they were being ignored deliberately by um, the mainstream media. Uh, but, but of course, once they gathered in the capital, uh, it did get an awful lot of coverage. But Do the media need to tell us a bit more about this movement, the people behind it, what the movement is and its its motivations are? We are trying to dig into this. Yes, I think it is incumbent on us to try to understand people as much as possible without amplifying their messages. But I would push back about the idea that we didn't cover the convoy. Uh, And so now that they are in the capital and are causing a lot of disruption, are affecting the running of parliament, uh, that we are now fully reporting on that. Has the media been a bit stumped by the fact 
that there are no high-profile supporters um, beyond a, 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 an ex-politician or two. You know, there is no one who will come forward and, and speak on behalf of the entire movement. Oh, I don't think it stumps us. I mean, going down there, I've seen like so many different signs. You know, there's the anti-mandate people, the anti-vax people, the anti-1080 people, the anti-three waters people, you know, it's kind of a magnet for anybody with a disaffection about something. So yeah, there's no clear, um, clear leader because there's not really one clear movement. I think it's just lots of people who are unhappy with the government. You said you'd been down there. Uh, if, if you went and introduced yourself to some of the people there, um, they would have said, sorry, you're Anna Who from the Dominion Watt. Uh, and it would be the same for me in RNZ. A lot of the people there are simply not absorbing mainstream media. So when they're hostile towards journalists or this concept of the media that they somehow think is corrupted, they're not really connected to it. That, that must make it harder for you and your reporters. I have think about who is our audience for this. I think those people down there are never going to read stuff and, uh, or or take on board the kind of reports that we are producing here. I think our audience is the 99% of New Zealand who doesn't agree with them or doesn't is, is confused or bemused by what they're doing down there. So I would much, I'm much more thinking about how to explain this phenomenon to our audience. And so this week we have been reporting not about the substance of the protest so much, but like why this one is much more enduring than the others. I'm much more interested in unraveling that uh, than, than speaking to those people. Bernard Hickey, when he reflected on all this, said, look, this is, this is going to happen again. We can see how these uh, protesters have been radicalised and clearly believe what the vast majority of society can recognise as misinformation. He even described it as a kind of existential threat to our national security and well-being. Do you think this is a sign of things to come, that this is becoming a kind of security issue and not just protest or resistance? I think Bernard's right in that we're going to see more and more protests like this and that this is a very small but very vocal movement. I think he's exaggerating, though, by saying that this is existential and yeah, that it's overblown to describe it in those terms. I think, yeah, that these people will not be... Um, persuaded or dissuaded by the facts or by the government response and they will continue to act in this way. Um, as an editor, of course, I'm worried about what that means for journalists. Uh, from a kind of nationwide point of view, I think that they are not really going to sway anybody. Like They will entrench their beliefs, um, but I doubt, very much doubt that they are going to persuade the wider public of the merits of their arguments, whatever they are. Yeah, it's funny because some people have pointed out that what on earth will happen if these people do get their hands on a politician. And in fact, this has actually happened, hasn't it? Already James Shaw, um, you know, a couple of blocks away from where I'm sitting right now at Radio New Zealand, was uh, assaulted by uh, on his way to Parliament by a guy shouting stuff about the United Nations. So, so perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised there's a, a media or a society. Yeah, I mean, that was a real warning, what happened to James Shaw at that time. And I know that the MPs and parliamentary staffers who have taken a lot of security measures, they've been escorted to their transport. Um, Nicola Willis told us how she's leaving her marked you know, car at home and the kind of things she's doing to protect herself there. So, yeah, I think the threat is really real to uh, 
civil servants to parliamentarians to the media you know we need to take steps to protect ourselves uh, in this situation and just finally out of interest what was the response of Don Post readers what's a flavor of what they were saying were they sending in letters to the editor saying you know that they wanted these people you know dispatched pepper sprayed <laughs> tear gassed out of out of town what's the general vibe of of how your audience was responding to what they'd seen both out on the streets and in the Don Post itself Right, yeah. My, I mean, my inbox is a very colourful place. Uh, I've had the full spectrum of responses from people emailing in, you know, taking issue with us calling them anti-vaxxers, not anti-mandate, when in fact I went back and checked, we've always called them anti-mandate. Uh, people alleging police brutality, people, um, you know, saying very uh, hateful things about our reporters and our reporting, but then also a lot of people saying, why isn't the council coming in and ticketing, towing everybody away? Why isn't the police acting? So the full spectrum of responses that has come in, and we some of that does play out on the letters pages, sometimes in the comments on stories and things, but um, yeah, I think that it's a, a broad spectrum of people. Of course, the dissenters, the people who think that we're not being fair, the, the well, the, probably the people who are down at the protests, um, they their voices is quite shrill and they do uh, email in a lot about the coverage. Anna Fifield is the editor of the Capital's daily paper, The Dominion Post. While protesters at Parliament were demanding that the government come out and meet them last Tuesday, Nick Mills, Wellington morning host on Newstalk ZB, wanted a call from them to his studio. What do we have to do? Do we have to go on hunger strike? Or Charlotte Ballas? Do we have to make international media attention to get the government to sit up and listen? Why doesn't someone from government ring our station and say, this is how long you're going to be in red for. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to fix it. Now, his day job is owning and running bars and venues in and around the capital, so understandably Nick Mills wants to know exactly when the red light will be turned off. But he'll wait in vain for a personal heads-up from the government on that. At her post-Cabinet press conference that very afternoon, the Prime Minister said that the shift from red to orange depends upon the impact of Omicron on the country's health systems. And no one yet knows what that will be. But there have been some pretty dire predictions about that in the headlines lately. Jeff says, if I heard correctly, about 10 days ago, RNZ was reporting based on US modelling that there would be 50,000 cases by Waitangi weekend in New Zealand. I am struggling to see us reaching 50,000 in the next seven days. Thanks, Jeff. That was Jesse Mulligan on his RNZ afternoon show right at the start of this month. And the text to Jeff did hear correctly. It was on the 27th of January that RNZ reported the UK-based Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation had predicted more than 400 deaths here by May, with infections peaking at about 80,000 each day just a few weeks later. Confronting stuff. So, as Jesse Mulligan mentioned at the start of this month, most experts here didn't actually think the Omicron explosion would be that bad. It was last week, and we talked to Michael Baker, didn't we? And he put some context uh, around those numbers, and he wasn't expecting 50,000 cases by Waitangi weekend. Nonetheless... Um, I think most people probably expected it to be rising faster than it is, according to the official numbers. And as Waitangi Weekend approached, Mike Hosking confronted COVID Response Minister Chris Hipkins about those British predictions. 
COVID-19 cases in the community. When's the so surge those, coming, by the way, given we're expecting 80,000 a day by Waitangi Day, which is Monday? Well, well, why don't you just guess? Why don't you hire? I'll tell you what, nice... give me one million. I'll model for you. I'll make up some numbers and I'll probably be more, be more accurate. And where Mike Hoskin goes in the morning on News Talk ZB, Heather Duplessis Ellen usually follows in the afternoon. If you saw the Omicron coming and heard, you know, the, the fear mongering about the 50,000 infections and all these cases and stuff, and you locked yourself down, or if you immediately sent your staff home from work fearing the worst, are you rethinking that decision now based on how slow this is playing out? TVNZ One News also referenced those alarming predictions from the UK a week earlier. There's been a big surge in COVID community cases today, but nowhere near that 50,000 some international experts had predicted we'd have by Waitangi weekend. And TVNZ News then also called on Professor Plank to explain why it hadn't been that bad. Um, the, the second point is that those numbers refer to infections, which is not the same thing as cases, because cases relies on people getting a test. And on Monday, Stuff published a handy backgrounder on the impact that red light restrictions might be making on our infections. Even relatively small changes in behaviour such as mask use and limiting larger gatherings can reduce the rate of exponential growth of Omicron. And the following day, new modelling came out that took some of those things into account. A COVID-19 modeller says Aotearoa could see much lower case numbers than previously forecast. Rodney Jones says his latest modelling suggests a peak of about 10,000 daily cases. And the same day, News Hub at 6 reported this. In fact, the latest modelling from Auckland University released this afternoon shows that uh, most likely the peak will be six to 18,000 cases a day in mid-March. So in other words, new information then changed the picture and there was really no need to throw out the mathematical baby with the talkback bathwater when the worst-case scenario didn't play out first time round. Writing for the Sydney Morning Herald last weekend, Stuff's Henry Cook told Aussie readers that lots of grim predictions here in 2021 hadn't come true. So his prediction for 2022... Some chaos is inevitable. Exactly how much is still in question. Some commentators, it seems, are prepared to say that some things are simply uncertain. But as Hayden Donnell now reports, not everyone in the media is prepared to say they just don't know. This is an RNZ podcast. About halfway through his recent explainer on our Omicron future, Stuff's Keith Lynch details this interesting exchange with one of his interviewees. One of the experts I spoke to for this piece was humble enough to proactively tell me how often they'd been wrong about COVID. That expert is Otago University Professor of Biochemistry, Kurt Krauss, and he's far from alone in having gummed up a few pandemic prognostications. The two-year tsunami of COVID infections has come with a twin wave of takes, many of which have turned out to be wildly off-base. Some of the most inaccurate of those have come from our prominent media commentators. This is former News Talk ZB host Martin Devlin downplaying the severity of the virus in March 2020. I do understand it, but you've got to listen. It's a pandemic now. You've got to listen to those I people. don't believe it's a pandemic. A pandemic killed almost 100 million people at the end of the First World War. That's a pandemic. That wasn't a unique view. Earlier, Nigel Latter had been urging people to calm the hell down about coronavirus and reminding them that the flu kills something like 500 people a year. This vein of commentary has been experiencing a renaissance with the emergence of Omicron. On February 1, NZME's Barry Soper compared the variant to a bad cold. But the common cold isn't lethal, with some rare exceptions, and Omicron is killing more than 2,000 people per day in the US. 
Former Finance Minister Stephen Joyce went on NZME's Leighton Smith podcast to call elimination a pie-in-the-sky fantasy in April 2020. But I also suspect that when, I mean, this whole idea that we would get rid of COVID-19 is uh, fairly pie-in-the-sky. It is with us, it is with the world and it is with us and it will be about how we manage it. Three months later, Kerry McIver blithely said COVID had been circulating in the community undetected. More recently, Newstalk's breakfast host Mike Hosking relayed this forecast on the vaccine rollout. Here's the cold hard reality. If they're going to stick hard and fast to 90%, as much as I'd like to say otherwise, we are not getting there. New Zealand recorded its first zero COVID day about two weeks after Joyce made his comments and had no active cases a month and a half later. Hosking's wall of resistance turned out to be pretty flimsy, with 93% of the 12-plus population now fully vaccinated. It's easy to criticise these predictions with the benefit of hindsight, and professional bloviators are far from the only ones to be caught out. Several prominent experts have offered opinions they probably regret as well. For instance, in January 2020, Director-General of Health Ashley Bloomfield told reporters face masks are not really any protection from the virus. Two months later, Susie Wiles wrote an article reminding people that COVID isn't airborne. In both cases, the science has since moved on and those experts have amended their positions. And that's how it's supposed to work. Science changes as more data emerges and prior assumptions are revised in light of new evidence. But that kind of uncertainty and ambiguity is at odds with a media ecosystem where the most strident takes are rewarded with a flood of algorithmically generated clicks and the most fringe opinions result in an engagement bonanza. Those clicks and that engagement can be lucrative, but they come at a cost to the media's perceived credibility and trustworthiness, which recent research has shown is at a low ebb. I asked Kurt Krauss, the expert who made that stark admission of error to Keith Lynch, whether our media commentators could do with following his lead and employing a bit more humility. So, first up, what compelled you to acknowledge the times you've been wrong about the pandemic? I don't know if you call them COVID mistakes or COVID surprises, but we've really been learning as as we go. So when we started out, we had uh, a picture of how COVID was going to evolve and how it needed to be treated. And I think as often as we got it right, I think, I think we got it wrong. We've learned now treating very severely ill COVID patients is quite different from treating patients early on. We've learned what to do with monoclonal antibodies. We learned uh, what to do with drugs like remdesivir and Paxlovid and molnupiravir. So we have a whole lot more to continue to learn, but we're dramatically better off than we were. This is how science works, right? It evolves and new data comes out and things change, but it's not necessarily how the media works. They will often say something unequivocally and never acknowledge when it turns out to be completely wrong. Do you think that the media commentators need to follow your lead a bit? I think it might be good if we all step back to realize that uh, whether we're right or wrong, none of us are the, are the story, right? The story is COVID-19. And if I end up promoting a certain therapy, which turns out to not be uh, the correct therapy, I need to raise my hand and say, that one didn't work out. Let's move on to another one. So we have to get the ego out of it. It's never about being right or wrong. You must have seen some media takes that are wrong. You know, we've had people talking about COVID's not that severe, elimination is impossible. Uh, in a way, uh, you, you can't really blame these media commentators for making these sorts of decisive calls because the media ecosystem really rewards this sort of certainty. You're exactly right. 
I mean, it would be awfully boring if people in the media said, well, we're not really sure. We're just going to have to take a wait and see attitude. And I don't know how to handle that. I mean, a lot of science is kind of boring and plotting. And that's the beautiful thing about it is it gets there at the end. I wonder whether this is a relationship that goes both ways as well, because does the fact that the media wants that certainty impact on the type of commentary that scientists give and what they're incentivized to give? Are you incentivized to be more certain than you actually are? I'm an infectious diseases physician, and before COVID, used to go to the international meetings you know, regularly every year or two attend those. And Tony Fauci was always at those, the head of the AID in the U.S., Tony was like everybody's sort of uh, example of a professional, extremely hardworking, bright, competent, completely trustworthy physician, right? Very data-driven. And gosh, he's been drawn into this huge controversy. His life is threatened on a regular basis. It's completely the antithesis of how he's conducted his, his career. And it's been shocking for me to see this happen or to see the kind of things that have happened to some of the media commentators in New Zealand, that people have attacked them on such a personal way. That's been shocking to me. It makes you pause about what you want to say in public about COVID. Maybe we need a stock take uh, at certain times during events like this to say, okay, here's what we know now. Uh, Here's what we thought was right and is wrong now. And here's where we're headed. Maybe we could pledge to do that. What do you think? Well, that's the thing. I mean, regardless of where the incentives lie, just what would your ideal be? Do we need to see a greater level of humility and agnosticism and uncertainty in our media commentary? Yes, 100% to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what it will take to find out the answer, and here's how we'll uh, proceed now. Maybe they would, would respond positively to that. That's kind of how science works. Do you think it erodes trust, I guess, in media and possibly even in science if we do present everything as certain and we don't acknowledge when we make mistakes? Yes. But having said that, I honestly think the media in New Zealand has done a good job and I think the commentators have have done a good job. Uh, Maybe modelers, it would be good for modelers. And I think generally modelers do note this, that, you know, this is a model. I'm sharing a model with you guys. It doesn't mean it's going to happen this way. And in fact, it won't happen this way. I'd I'd like to see uh, a little more of an acknowledgement up front, you know, on the level of certainty with which uh, people are speaking. Maybe, Maybe that would be a good thing. I guess it doesn't just go for the scientific commentators because we also have a lot of just media commentators that have given really certain opinions about where the pandemic is heading. And it's hard to say stop doing that when it obviously drives ratings. The biggest concern that I have is the lack of respect for experts or the erosion of respects for for experts. You know, if I want to get uh, the plumbing redone in my house, I go to an experienced master plumber who's done it 10 times and I get references saying, yep, this guy's done a good job. You know, I may Google something, but I'm not going to go to a talk radio host to figure out how to do my, my plumbing, right? When you have a key question about how to treat an infectious disease, the feeling is, now oh, don't talk to an infectious disease physician. You need to talk to somebody who's a, a talk radio host. And I don't know how that happened. But also, as you acknowledge, that these experts are going to get things wrong and things are going to evolve. How do you manage that tension? Transparency. You've got to be upfront to say, you know, here's what we know now and here's why we know it. 
some calm assessment of things that in, in the media that need to be corrected. That's important. Otherwise, you end up kind of repeating conclusions that somebody else told you about a paper that somebody else read. Yeah, just finally, if I made you sour of the media uh, tomorrow and you could change the way that we cover COVID-19, how, how would that look? What would change? I try to have everything as, as fact-based as possible and have people um, acknowledge the level of uncertainty or certainty with which they're speaking and how reassessment's going to take place. And something like, you know, here's what we're going to be doing and here's why we're doing it. And here's how we're going to judge if we get it right. And if we don't get it right, we're going we're gonna to change and we're going to make a, make a correction. And don't expect that we're going to get it all right now, but we will get it right over time. And we're just going to do our very best to control this pandemic in, in a way that benefits everybody. Uh, and that it's not about, you know, the, the, whoever is speaking at every given moment. It's about doing the best for, for New Zealand and doing the, doing the best for controlling the pandemic. That was Otago University Professor of Biochemistry, Kurt Krauss, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, a golden sporting moment for New Zealand last Sunday. Yeah, she, she was just ecstatic. She's just uh, over the moon with uh, the results. Uh, we, you know, we made sure that she knew that uh, she probably had the largest uh, audience of any New Zealand sporting broadcast ever, <laughs> and all the Kiwis are out there rooting for her. That's Sean Sinnott talking to Karen Hay on RNZ National after his daughter Zoe Sadowski Sinnott had won New Zealand's first ever Winter Olympic gold medal in Beijing. And Sean provided a bit of a live broadcast moment himself on News Hub at 6 that day. How much has she sacrificed? Well, the toilet blocked up this morning. Or yesterday morning. And you reckon that was good I'm not going to tell you about that. (laughs) Now, quite how that block Dunny fitted in wasn't really clear, but there was an outbreak of potty mouth from him on air just around the bend. Right, uh, her her younger sister, she was crazy. She just went off the roof. How proud are you right now? Your daughter's just become the first Kiwi to win a winter gold, ever. I'm pretty excited, to be honest. Well, Sean Sinnott was nothing if not honest there. Yeah, apologies for the language there, Gordon. Thanks very much. You enjoy the night. (laughs) The Herald's website reported Sean's reaction as priceless, using asterisks in the offending words, while Stuff reported gingerly that Sean possibly threw a colourful adjective into the mix in his interview. There was no possibly about it, and he wasn't done. In that chat with Karen Hay, Sean Sinnott again gave listeners a little too much information about Zoe's last competitive outing in China. She picked up a lurgy uh, between the qualifiers and the finals for Big Air. Woke up in the middle of the night, called Mum, said, uh, I'm vomiting. <laughs> anyway. Can, can I just say, Dad, stop it. <laughs> I'm speaking on her behalf. But it was a little too late at that stage to stop Sean Sinnott. Now, last weekend, there could have been another golden moment in New Zealand sport if the Wellington Phoenix had qualified for the FFA Cup final in Australia 
But sadly, they came up short, and it was Melbourne Victory who lived up to their name. And their former striker, Archie Thompson, lived up to his reputation as a not entirely reliable co-commentator. When talking about the need of players to acknowledge their young fans in the stands, he did it with language that kids aren't supposed to hear on TV. You need to go over there, you need to sign, because these are the next generation. You're trying to inspire these young uh, young guys or young girls to be professional football. Not likely they'll be having Archie Thompson back as a sideline Sam on Aussie TV anytime soon, or probably Sean Sinnott for the next Winter Olympics on our screens as well, to be honest. That's all for Media Watch for this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again at the same time next weekend with Media Watch here on RNZ National.